me start with a uh, reference that I came across many years ago when I was a science teacher at uh, Brisbane Grammar School. Scientists knew the earth was old before they knew how old. Now, as I read this document from the National Academy of Sciences, and if you don't know the National Academy, you don't join by paying $10 a year. Uh, you get voted in. This is a fairly e elect society. Scientists knew the earth was old before they knew how old. You notice the title, Science and Creationism? It was bought out to sort of uh, attack the increasingly blooming successful uh, creationist movement in the USA with a little bit of uh, impetus from here in Australia. Uh, have you analysed that? Have you had enough time to think about that? Question. If you went up to a woman and say, I know how old you are before I know how old you are, what's liable to happen? Yes, you might get a slap in the face. Um, that is a silly statement. That's philosophical nonsense. That's an impossibility. And that was my introduction to this subject because I'll be honest, having been trained in geology, having done a lot of cold geology, the one thing I shied away from was the age of things because it's so hard. I mean, come on, kids. Do you know what a million years is like? No. Hey, you were here today, weren't you? Hands up if you were here today, kids. Oh, good, a lot of you come back. That's good. I suspected that would be the case. So I brought along some prizes to see if you can tell the adults some of the things we did. Okay, remember how we gave away some things today? We've got two things before we want to pursue this topic that we need to sort out. Um, we bought our two kids' books out here, the one on dinosaurs and the one on Adam and Eve and the monkeys in the trees, the brand new series. If you were here today, that's kids only, and you can tell me um, the rest of this Bible verse. Uh, put your hand up, by the way. First hand up gets the chance. I haven't asked the question yet. <laughs> Are you ready? Here it is. Come out. You've got to pick the person. This is my colleague Joseph, though, by the way. See, I've got to stay popular. Oh, right. Uh, okay. All right, here's the verse. I want to know the rest of it. Test. What does it say? Test everything. Nelly, Nelly, Nelly. What's the next bit? Test all things. What if they are good? Come on, you've Nelly got it. Time's up. Yes, up the back. And you know where it comes from? Oh, he really messed the second half up, didn't he? I'll tell you what. Kids, we did it today. Test everything and only keep the things that are good. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21. Now you'll have to borrow mum's credit card. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. The point that Joseph made is really worthy of our, our subject tonight. <clears throat> I grew up with a world <clears throat> that was allegedly billions of years old. And uh, the overwhelming evidence presented to me was such that I didn't even think of running a test on it. I thought the scientists knew what they were talking about and they were objectively just revealing information. Then I came across that. Scientists knew how old the earth was before they knew how old. And then I came across that verse in the Bible, test everything. Only keep the things that turn out to be true.
I've done a lot of debates since then. You can see this debate online. It was done for the year 12s in England. Uh, it was done specially for school students, so it's not a stand-up, knock-down debate um, because that, that can happen sometimes. Um, he is an atheist. He's the professor of biology. He's the world expert on plant mutations. There he is on the right-hand side. There's me on the left. And, uh, well, he's a smart man, no doubt about it. But during the debate, he said several things that I agreed with, including this one. We have precious little in the way of intermediates in the fossil record. I totally agree. I told him I agreed with that because that's what convinced me to abandon the theory of evolution at Queensland University. There's no things linking things up. But then he went on to say, but the world is so old, evolution must have happened. And I thought that's an interesting statement. So let me tell you first, before we deal with the question of age, what is evolution? There's a normal diagram. You know, ape-like creatures evolving up into Bill Shorten. That's the normal sort of diagram. You could have this diagram. Uh, Big Bang Theory, ultimately gases and hydrogen, etc., turning into us, and it hasn't stopped. You can have this picture. Death and struggle over millions of years, amoebas becomes apes, becomes us. Or you can get in particular, you can have a fish turning into an amphibian, turning into a reptile, turning into a mammal, turning into a bear who eats a fish. Ah. And only natural processes are involved and vast ages. Okay, we did this this afternoon, kids, didn't we? Beware of false science. It's the John Mackay, Mr. Hubbard summary of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Beware of false knowledge. Beware of false information. It will always lead you astray. That's why you're supposed to test all things. You know, I couldn't even think of a way to test whether the world was too old, the Bible to be true, or whether the test was the age was true or not. But then an older gentleman said to me, here's what you want to do. Go and grab all your geology textbooks from Queensland University. Get ones from 1920, 1930, 1940, 1950, right up to when you were a student and see how old the world was. I said, why would I do that? He said, you'll find the age of the earth has changed every 20 years. You know, he was right. Hmm. But the professor thought the world was so old, evolution must be true. As a result, he rejected that. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. As a result of his confidence in evolution, because the world was so old, he couldn't believe in Adam and Eve. He couldn't believe in Noah. He couldn't believe in Abraham or Moses. Oh, he sort of believed there was a person called Jesus, but he wasn't God. You see, the world was so old, evolution must be true, and his logic was the same as Charles Darwin's. If evolution is true, the Bible is false. Okay, tonight we might even get questions about uranium dating. Um, there's another version of evolution. Hydrogen is a colourless, odourless gas, which has to evolve first into carbon before you can have carbon-14 to date anything with. And somewhere down the line, even carbon has to turn into heavy metals like uranium. At the same time, as it's turning into humans, the universe and everything else. I'll guarantee they don't do that part of evolution in your high school courses. Oh, I haven't finished yet. At the same time, as big atoms like uranium are decaying into smaller atoms like lead and helium to show we've had long enough for small atoms like hydrogen to become big molecules such as people. Uh, by the way, 
if it's true that uranium is falling into smaller atoms, then it can't be true that hydrogen is turning into bigger ones. I'll let you think of it. There's a lot of hard subjects tonight, but you see, I want to give you some interesting stuff as well. Uh, there's the second bit of information I had about the age of things. He was right at the peak of his career when he said this and influenced students like me. I suspect that the sun is 4.5 billion years old. Hmm. Problem. If the sun really is 4.5 billion years of age, then the biblical account of creation, six days, Noah's flood, could not be read literally. I can see that. You see, it turned into that. 6,000 versus 4.5 billion. Now, I even had one debate against an atheist. He said, ladies and gentlemen, the choice tonight is 6,000 years or 6 billion. And he was quite right on the scale of things. But you see, the professor who wrote this said, uh, I suspect the sun is 4.5 billion years old. However, given some new and unexpected results to the contrary, and some time for frantic recalculation, boy, they use some interesting big words, don't they? To, to guard their backside. Oh, you don't remember him? He was right at the top of the astronomy world when he said this. He already had his reputation. He didn't care anymore what you thought of him. Uh, you wondering what he went on to say? Given some time for frantic recalculation and theoretical readjustment, I suspect we could live with Archbishop Usher's value for the age of the Earth and the Sun. Hey. Anyone remember Archbishop Usher? You know, when I was at university, they told me he was a nignog. They told me he was an idiot. They told me he was a fundamentalist who lived in Ireland where nobody's got any brains. You know, well, man, that was the impression I had until I went to County Armagh and I got to know a lot more about Archbishop Usher. You know, he was, he actually wrote in heaps of languages and he researched in heaps of places and he wrote a book that big on the whole chronology of the Bible in order to sort out when Easter was. It wasn't on the age of the earth. That was incidental. Um, he was the only bishop in history who was a Catholic bishop and a Protestant bishop in the same place. He had, oh, this is an Irish Catholic bishop, the old Irish Catholicism, which is much closer to Protestantism than most of you would think. Um, he actually wrote this book without Google. I mean, he did all his original research. And the professor went on to say, I don't think we've got much in the way of observational evidence in astronomy to conflict with Archbishop Usher's dates. Now, there's an eyeball revelation for you. Okay, step two. Let's deal with how old fossils are. We're going to take you to Sydney. Have you heard of it? Yeah, it's not all that far away. Because I tracked this fossil down to the British Naturalist Museum in London because I'd come across records of it from Australia. They had the plaster cast. You can see it's starting to fall apart there when I first found it. And look, there is uh, the actual fossil standing there. And here is the display sign. Now, I know you don't go around photographing display boards, but I'm weird. I do. This fossil was uh, 200 million years old in 1987, found in the Sydney Shales. Okay. Now, I went back several times to the museum to keep track of this fossil, and in 1999, there's what it looked like. How good's your memory? What's the difference? The other one was standing like this. Somebody's done a new PhD. And, of course, with the sign, uh, why was I doing this? You see, that year I had to address the Geological Association at Oxford. I wanted to make sure of my facts. You see, most people think these ages are facts. But on the signboard it said, 
This is the only known example of amphibian that lived in Australia 235 million years ago. How good's your memory? You see, how many people photograph the signs and file them? Aging and Aging Fossil Fossil was 235 million years old in 1999. In 1987, it was 200 million years old. I've got the photographic evidence. In 1910, when it was found in Triassic sediment in St Peter's Quarry, oh, you see, I went and I got the shipping docks to see what it said. In 1910, the Triassic rocks were 180 million years old. How good's your thinking? You see, this fossil aged by 55 million years and only 109. And some of you ladies are worried about how fast you're getting old. <laughs> Feel sorry for this guy. You see, what's interesting is if these dates were real, the Bible could not be read literally. And I know many well-intentioned saints who say, oh, but the scientist says, therefore, the days in Genesis can't be real days. Or the age of the universe is this big, so there must be a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. Or it must be poetry. If the dates were real, you couldn't read the Bible literally but the dates are merely the latest opinion. You don't have to spend much time in science to find that whatever's the current popular date is not a fact, it's just the latest opinion, whoever did the last PhD. Hmm. Now, what else has changed? See the first topic there, the home? Where I live now, where I've lived for the last 45 years nearly, um, the rocks have changed ages three times in the last century. I know because I checked the geology before I, I got the house. And I built the dam in this place because of the geology. And this has changed from Precambrian up to Carboniferous up to, well, it's changed again. I tell you what, which date should I pick? Uh, see Polkinghorne? I debated him. You can actually watch that debate on our YouTube free. Professor Polking, physics, Cambridge University. And he started his debate by saying 13.6 billion years ago. And then he proceeded to give exactly the same debate I had recorded from another location, except he started in a different place. In the previous debate, he said 15 billion years ago. So I had a wonderful starting line. I said, isn't it interesting? In the 10 years since Professor Polkinghorne gave this debate at X place, he's aged by 10 years and the universe has gotten younger by 1.3 billion. <laughs> These aren't facts. Okay, what about this one? Anyone know what it is? It's a shark. How did you know? Are you a qualified geologist? Fantastic. You see, I asked this bunch of homeschooling kids down in Melbourne. I got it out for them. Don't touch it. Have you noticed how people like to touch fossils? It's real. And one kid said, my dad catches those in Port Phillip Bay. <laughs> yeah, he's quite right. It's a sand shark. You know, shovel-nosed shark. Um, they're not bad eating either. But a harder question. Who wrote about these things first? You see, we tend to think of geology and science as being modern and real, but the answer is Archbishop Eusebius in 325 AD. And you say, who on earth was Eusebius? Well, the answer is he was the Bishop of Lebanon, and he'd heard a rumour about a smelly mountain, and it smelt like dead fish. And he was always interested in these sort of things, and he uh, went there and sent somebody up the top, you could afford to do that for a bishop. You didn't have to go up yourself. We received confirmation that the flood rose above the highest mountains of our day because the fossils, they didn't use that terminology in his, but that's what he's talking about. Fish were discovered up high on Mount Lebanon, thus providing evidence that the old story of the flood is credible. 
You say, how would I know that? Well, the answer is, it's translated from the classical Armenian. You know, these bishops left a lot of records. They did. I mean, the Apostle Paul left a lot of records. The Romans left a lot of records. They could write. Hmm. Amazing. How old did he think the world was? 5,611 years from the creation to the taking of Rome by the Goths. Interesting history of the world, isn't it? Okay, so we live in a world which currently dates the universe at uh, 14 billion years. Uh, we live in a, a, a world where Archbishop Eusebius is on record as saying it's less than 6,000 years old. Okay, who said that? Come on, let's offer a prize. I have some new kids' books. So if there's a grandma or grandpa here, you can win any one of these new kids' books on why does the elephant have a big long nose, who made all the dinosaurs, and how did Noah fit the dinosaurs on the ark? Anyone? I mean, it's an easy question. It's the answer that's hard. Oh, they didn't get that. They didn't get that. They will. And nobody know who said that? Martin Luther. You see, it's interesting to read Martin Luther because his dad worked in a coal mine. So he was one of the first to say, link creation, link flood, link fossils. And he did. I was amazed when I came across this in his Genesis commentary, which is really worth reading. Okay, by the time you get to John Calvin, with my name Mackay, guess what country my family comes from? Scotland, and John Calvin was a big influence there, so I'm fairly familiar with what Calvin says, albeit the duration of the world, now declining to its ultimate end, has not yet attained 6,000 years. God's work was completed, not in a moment, but in six days. I, I have to warn you, by the way, uh, whether you're talking about the Archbishop of Antioch, whether you're talking about Archbishop Eusebius, or whether you're talking about John Calvin or Martin Luther, there's no such thing as a traditional old earth Christian view. Not at all. Not until you get past the days of Charles Darwin. You see, they firmly believed God meant what he said and said what he meant. If you haven't read the whole chapter, Exodus chapter 20, I'd recommend you do it because here's how it starts. Now the Lord said to Moses. Now that's either true or it's false. It's not Moses sat on Mount Sinai pondering for 40 days and 40 nights. What on earth am I going to tell this three million whinging Jews? Uh, not at all. This is either a true statement or it's a false statement. And from that, you end up with the first Adam 6,000 years ago, Jesus roughly 2,000 years ago, and the connection is first Adam, last Adam, which is what the Apostle Paul makes. And for the record, do you realise your New Testament over and over again teaches that all things were made by Jesus Christ? It does. The Jesus in the New Testament is actually the creator of the Old Testament. As mysterious as you might find that to be, and all the links that you'll find might be difficult, um, well, you can ask some questions if you like, or you can go and check it out for yourself. Uh, you can't check this one out, except we took the pictures to prove we were there, because we had a big meeting last year in England, didn't we, Joseph? In fact, uh, Ken Ham and I, and even Joseph was on stage. Uh, Joseph, come and let me introduce you uh, to them. This is Joseph Hubbard. And you've heard of Mother Hubbard. Somehow they're related. She had a cupboard. He's got a cupboard. They both have mothers. Um, okay. And I've got you up there as Indiana Joe. Where on earth did you get that name yeah, from? Yeah, that was uh, an Australian supporter gave me that name a little while back now. And it kind of stuck. Um, a lot of people will just call me Indy now. Okay. So, and some of them call you Indiana Bones, Indiana don't Bones they? Indiana Bones as well. Yeah, That's okay. another one, yeah. Well, listen, you take over for the next little while. And I'll come back. Where are you? I'm here. Okay. I didn't move. It was you going around all this way. Um, 
Yeah, I just want to start out with a disclaimer. Um, my back has been coming increasingly worse and more painful over the past week and I just discovered uh, a few minutes before this service began that if it's extremely painful my leg goes down. So if I collapse on the floor halfway through that's the reason. Um, but you can pray for that because it's uh, becoming a bit, of a bit of a nuisance now. But uh, yes, if anybody wants to follow me where I am, where I'll be going, the kind of research and work that I do, indianajoe.blog, just like a normal website, the only difference is if I put a .blog on the end it's free. So um, I went with that version. But you can actually uh, follow me, see where I'm going, see the kind of research that I do with John. Or alternatively, if you want to go onto creationresearch.net, which you will find the website for on this, you can click onto the evidence news, sign up for the newsletters, and you'll be kept up to date with all the work that we do. So what do I do? Well, uh, as I told the um, young people here who were here earlier during the session that we were doing with them, I am a paleobiologist. That's what my background is in. Uh, paleobiology simply means I dig up dead things and try and work out how they lived. It's great fun. Um, so we get to go around the world digging up fossils. All these fossils at some point or other usually end up in one of our museums. You see, we have a museum project all over the globe. Um, this particular one, the Genesis Museum of Creation Research, was one that I set up a few years back now. Um, it was basically my fossil collection which kind of outgrew the shelf that it was on and spread to an entire room. Uh, we then merged with John and Creation Research in 2014. We now have over 3,000 fossils on display and they're just the ones that'll fit in the room. We've got another two sheds outside stacked ceiling to uh, floor to ceiling full of fossils as well. So I've uh, been involved in this work since 2014 with John. Um, I've been did a little bit before then, and uh, we I help John now travel around doing this kind of speaking research and also developing new resources. You'll see some of our resources out on the table, including uh, this one right here. Uh, our brand new T-shirts. You see, stop following me. You see that little part section up the top there, stop following me, is a very popular as a joke t-shirt in the UK. I saw that and I thought, you know what, we need to get a biblical picture on that. Stop following me, we're not related, God created man in his own image. Um, you see, it's all about the fact that we are actually created in the image of God, not in the image of apes. We started these back in the UK, uh, trial ran them for a little while. They proved to be very popular in Manchester and in London, some of the most atheistic Muslim parts of the country, and uh, they're extremely popular for use during evangelism. Because boy, do they start conversations. They're suitable from the very young, and we had a, uh, the very old actually came up and bought some as well. Um, the pastors we've been traveling around, you'll see those things out there. Okay, the topic tonight. Um, I'm dealing with fossils. John will come back and deal with a few more different bits about the age of the earth later, but we'll try and break it up with a question-answer time. Um, let's start by taking you back to the Natural History Museum in London. You see, as museums go in the world, it's a pretty prestigious one. Um, it's quite a well-known one as well. I visited there uh, the day before I flew out here to Australia. I was down in London uh, to catch the flight and I couldn't resist popping in and having a look around. But you know, as you go around places like the Natural History Museum or just about any other museum in the world, um, you can see some fabulous stuff in there. Some really great things. You see all the dinosaurs and the mammoths? Well, as amazing as they all are, the one thing which is promoted in all these museums around the globe, particularly the Natural History Museum, is that if you want to get a fossil, like the spectacular examples you see there, fossilization from creature to a fossil is a really, really slow process. 
That is what is promoted throughout all these museums, throughout books, throughout media, schools, and up through university. I know that because I had to sit through three years of it. Um, this is the story which they tell you. This is taken straight out of a museum. How do you get a fossil fish? Step one, a fish dies and sinks to the bottom of the lake. Step two, the fish rots and only the bones are left. The fish is then covered with mud. Step three, millions of years pass and the mud turns to rock. Over time, the bone matter is completely changed into mineral matter and the fish is now a fossil. That's how you get your fossil fish, according to the millions of years idea, to the, uh, you know, the process which is promoted in universities and museums around the world. We had this verse up earlier for the kids. We got them to memorise it. Um, test all things. Hold fast to what is good. You see, coming from an academic background, I know that that sentence there would fit very well in a uh, science lecture, very well in a science textbook, very well in a, in a documentary on science, or at least what science is supposed to be about. Because that is what a scientist is supposed to do. You have an idea, you see an observation, you test it. If it holds up to those experiments, you hold fast to it. If it doesn't, you throw it out and you start again. Um, but that's not in a science textbook, a science lecture, or anything like that. That's in the Bible. That is what God is telling me and anybody here who are Christians tonight to do. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Let's do some testing. Fish fossils. Let's take you to the museum. You see, the uh, majority of the stuff in the museum is stuff that uh, myself or John or the rest of the UK team has collected over the years. But every now and then, we do get people donating some fossils to the museum. And uh, just uh, a few weeks before I came out here to Australia, we had a new fossil donated to the museum. Um, this one. I first came across this a few years back down uh, in a fossil shop on the south coast and uh, saw it, thought it was amazing, took some photographs of it, uh, sort of spread it around, uh, began to talk about it. And one of our supporters came up to me early this year and said, you know what, I want to try and raise some funds to be able to get this for you mu your museum. And indeed he did. And we now have it. Um, you see big fish? You see little fish? See big fish is uh, currently swallowing little fish? Huh. Interesting. Um, do you remember step two of how to get a fish fossil? The fish rots away and only the bones are left. Okay, well, let's have a look at this fish fossil. Because um, there's a lot more there than just bones. Um, you can see the fins. You can see the scales. You can see the remains of the eyeball and the ligaments and everything that's holding the mouth together. You see, this has been buried so quickly it hasn't had chance to be destroyed and rotted away. Certainly was buried and fossilised quicker uh, or before it had chance to, to fully rot away and just the bones being left. Um, what else can we learn from these fossils? Well, when I first saw that, I thought that that fish was, you know, I thought little fish was currently being eaten by big fish. But it actually turns out not quite. Um, have a look carefully along that top part of little fish. Can you see the teeth marks? The little indentations into the top of the fish's body. You see, little fish has already been swallowed. In fact, little fish has already been munched on and eaten and swallowed down. And then big fish has been caught up and squashed so suddenly and so violently that little fish has gone, what? It has. It's been squashed. It's been squashed so suddenly and so violently that the small fish inside has been literally squeezed out. Um, and this isn't actually unusual. I mean, just have a look at some of these other displays that we've got here in Australia. You see the fish at the top? Let's blow it up a little bit closer. 
Um, you see big fish? You see little fish? You see big fish and little fish is exactly the same as the one we've got back in the museum. The only difference is, in this case, little fish has been slightly more digested. Um, this is a fossil fish vomiting. In fact, it's been squashed so quickly, so suddenly and so violently, the entire contents has just been poured out. This is a quick fossil. Okay, all the way back to step one. Step one, a fish dies and sinks to the bottom of the lake. Okay, small problem there. Majority of fish will float when they die. That is a genuine problem. Um, and then once they float, they then very quickly begin to rot away and you would never, ever fossilise that fish at all. Okay, remember, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Well, you see, we began to get some critiques. We began to get people, because been, I've been saying this for quite a while now, and it is still a very valid point, the majority of fish do float when they die, but we had some people coming up to us and saying, hang on a minute, under some conditions, fish can sink to the seafloor and stay there. So, okay, we better look into this, test all things. Actually, turns out they're right. You see, the reason why fish float in the first place is because they have a, uh, a little swim bladder, right, full of air. And when they die, if the water is there, it will begin to bloat and those will float. But if the water is very cold, that doesn't happen. The fish will sink to the bottom. Uh, and in fact, some fish, like sharks, don't actually have any swim bladders at all. That's why they have to keep moving. And so when they die, they sink to the bottom as well. Okay, we thought, okay, so that's true. What does that mean? Well, they said under some conditions, fish can sink and stay on the seafloor. Therefore, the fish that do sink to the seafloor can become fossilised. Therefore, you can get fish fossils without them being buried quickly. Okay, test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Um, see, we began to do some testing, and the answer came to us in the form of a fish farmer. And he said, after I'd been given one of these talks, you know what, you're absolutely right. He said, I keep fish and I keep them in cold water. And we have a huge problem. Because when they die, they don't float. It's too cold. So they sink to the bottom. I said, okay, what's your problem? He said, well, within just a few hours, this happens. Can you see the little fungus starting to grow on the fish? He said, this is a particular type of fungus. It's already existing on the bottom of the sea. The minute that that fish touches the bottom of the tank, or we found out on the seafloor or anywhere where the fish reaches the bottom, that fungus will come off, off, up out of the ground, begin to go over the fish, and it will actually anchor the fish to the seafloor. Even if the fish initially sank, but then later bloated, it still wouldn't make any difference because that fungus would have completely anchored it to the floor. And within just a few hours, the fish is being completely consumed by that fungus. Within a couple of days, there's no fish left at all. Question, would you get a fish fossil even if the fish sank and stayed there? Absolutely not. The fish would be destroyed a long time before it could be fossilised. You see, if you want to get a fossil fish, you need to bury the fish quick enough and deep enough before it has chance to rot away, before it has chance to be destroyed. In other words, it's got nothing to do with time. Time is your enemy when it comes to creating a fossil. Too much time will not produce a fossil whatsoever. What you actually need is the right process. Get the right process, you can make fish fossils very quickly. In fact, using the correct process is the only way that you can get a fish fossil. All right, let's talk about some other fossils. Um, crocodiles. There's your crocodiles. You've got quite a few of them in uh, Australia. Not down here, but more sort of up here, up north parts of Australia. Um, 
But even though we don't have uh, crocodiles in the... Well, we do sort of have crocodiles in the UK. Um, we've got the dead ones, the fossil ones. Um, in fact, in the museum, we've got this one. This is one from... Uh, actually, this particular one is one from Africa in Morocco, uh, out of the rocks there. Um, but we get a lot of fossil crocodiles throughout the UK as well. This is one that's in the museum. Um, there's a few different sort of side shots of it. It gives you a bit of an idea of uh, how big it is, okay? Where does it come from? comes from Morocco, comes from a place called the Kem Kem. What do the experts have to say about the Kem Kem? Well, you see, the idea is, see, I'm a paleobiologist. I know that what you're supposed to do when you dig up fossils is try and create ecosystems, try and work out where these creatures lived, how they lived. All right, so if you see a deposit which have got crocodiles in it, you're supposed to be able to say, this is a marine environment where the crocodiles lived and then died. Okay, what do the experts say about this place? This place is hundreds of times more abundant than normal marine sediment. In other words, there's far too many animals here, way more than there actually should be. Hmm, interesting. Okay, what else can we find? Well, there's the dimensions. Um, it's a fairly sizable, it's not a huge crocodile skull, but it's fairly sizable. What can we learn about it? Well, it's a pretty nice sized crocodile. Um, you couldn't get it buried really, you, you know, you couldn't get it buried slowly. It'd just be completely destroyed. This is a nice sized crocodile. But look at the detail. Because, see, the one thing that we know about the way that crocodiles work today is um, their teeth don't hang around for very long. You see, there's a modern crocodile tooth. It's got no or very little root to it. Once they die, those teeth fall out very, very easily. And yet our croc has got a pretty good set of teeth. You see, this crocodile hasn't been hanging around dead for a while before it uh, was then buried and fossilised. It's been buried very quickly. Um, it's a nice-sized creature. It's been buried rapidly. It's been buried deeply. It's been buried quick enough so it hasn't had any chance to decompose or rot away at all. What else can we learn from this crocodile skull? Well, you see, the reason we know it's a crocodile skull is quite simply because it looks like the modern counterparts. There's no difference whatsoever. Um, there is one minor difference when it comes to fossil crocodiles, though. See, there's John holding a modern crocodile skull, uh, and there's the one that's in his garage. It's quite a bit bigger. In fact, they could get very big. In fact, your crocs in today's world, they're some of the largest in the world, they can get, what, five, six metres in length? Well, the fossil ones, they could get up to 20 metres. They could get very, very big indeed. Give you a bit of perspective, there's the modern croc skull, there's the fossil one. These are some big creatures. But you see, that's not evolution. That's, in fact, the opposite. Remember what evolution says? You start down there and you go upwards. You get bigger. You get better. What does the Bible say? The Bible says God created everything very good. Those things started up here, and they've been going downhill ever since. You see, as I work as a part-time zookeeper, it's basically to help pay for my university. And the one thing that I've learned over the years of working with reptiles, which is what I specialize in, reptiles grow all of their lives. They never stop growing. What you're looking at is not a very large croc. Well, you are, but specifically, you're looking at a very old one. They were living a lot longer back then, just like the humans. Read your Bible, humans lived a lot longer back then. But that's what we'd expect. Things started out good, not so good today. In fact, they're pretty bad today. That's why we're full of diseases. That's why we've got bad backs and all the problems that we do. Huh. Interesting quote from a local museum in Norfolk, from the Castle Museum. Did you know fossilization is actually very rare? In order for something to be fossilized, the remains normally need to be covered by sediment straight away. You know what? They're absolutely right. In fact, it's not normally, it's always 
you need to bury stuff quickly in order to get a fossil. Again, it's got nothing to do with time, but everything to do with the process. Oh, I've said that before, haven't I? It's a good point, though. It's got nothing to do with time, everything to do with process. You see, it's not the evidence which contradicts the word of God. It's only the theories and opinions of men. That's what you really find when you begin to look. Okay, let's take you to uh, one of our museums. One in Australia, one that you're uh, more, <laughs> more likely to visit, shall we say, than the one in the UK. Um, the only outdoor creation research museum and fossil dig site. It's a fantastic place. It's in Australia. You've heard of that, yeah? Um, in fact, it's up in Queensland. Jurassic Ark. There's the outside of it. You see, I've been working with John uh, for a few years now. I've been following the ministry for quite a lot longer, and it had been my long-time dream to be able to visit this place. And I was finally able to do that a few days after arriving here in Australia, so it really was a dream come true. We've got our open day there on the 8th. I'll be there, John will be there, some of the rest of the uh, creation research team will be there. But you see, we take groups of people round. School children, homeschoolers, youth groups... Um, university professors, we take the lots round and we show them the evidence of the Bible, uh, the evidence that the Bible is true from the beginning to the end. You see, we've got some great murals there. We've got some great models there. You see these uh, dinosaurs? Uh, you see, they're not as good as the original. They're just the plastic replicas. But you see, the interesting thing is nobody would ever uh, dare to be stupid enough to say that those plastic figurines got there all by themselves. Somebody clearly with intelligence made them. But yet the ones that used to be alive, they eventually at one point came from hydrogen that eventually managed to turn itself into real, real living dinosaurs uh, which could reproduce themselves, which the design plastic ones can't. You see the uh, almost stupidity when it comes to the argument. All right, we have lots of fossils there. We take people from the beginning to the end, a walk through history from the beginning to the end, and we have lots and lots of fossils there as well, um, including these ones. Funny position for a dinosaur to be in. You see, when you go around museums, you will see these dinosaurs in what we call their life position. You know, doing a pose. Um, that's not how we find them in the rocks. That's how we find the dinosaurs in the rocks. In this very strange position. And you know what? There is only one explanation for this, and you can find all the technical data on it. You can find the papers because they've run experiments. And the one thing that we know, it depends on how mean you are as a scientist. You can either go and drown yourself some animals, or you can go and watch a flood and see exactly the same thing. But whenever animals uh, drown, particularly ones with a long neck and a tail, every single time they will go into that position. These dinosaurs have provably drowned. And they're found like this all over the world. So we go out and collect these specimens. We've got these fossils all throughout the museum. Um, you see, the evidence is really there. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. The windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You see, the real evidence is there when you look for it. Um, oh, and by the way, that's not a fairy tale. How do fairy tales start? Once upon a time. There is literally next to no detail in fairy tales. I mean, none of you are able to tell me uh, how old Snow White was to that degree. What number of doors were the li three little pigs living at? Fairy tales lack details. Yet this is a diary. Specifically, it tells us that Noah was 600 years old, uh, two months and 17 days old when the flood started. You know what? It also tells us how old he was when he got off. That's how we know how long the flood lasted. Um, 
But you will find, if you match up all the, date, uh, all the dates in the Bible, you will find that this is about 1,600 years after Adam was created. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. All the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. They drowned the animals, and they were buried in the rocks, and you can see the evidence there. Which is why we have all these fantastic mules up and about. Um, you see, the one thing we discovered was that very few people today like to read. I was brought up with reading. I was reading at the age of three. I was home educated. I was brought up with reading, still love books. But the majority of people today just don't enjoy reading, certainly not the Bible. Which is why we put all these murals up. I will bring a flood to destroy all living things under heaven that have the breath of life. You see, we take people for a walk through history. With fossils, great big fossils, great big stuff. Uh, our own dinosaur cove. Kids absolutely love it. Uh, world unique dinosaur specimens as well. Um, this one is Dracorex, means the king of the dragons. Uh, it was called that because it was a dinosaur skeleton that was found that resembled so closely to a dragon that they actually called it one, the king of the dragons, Dracorex. Draco, like in Revelation in the Bible, the dragon. Um, in fact, we're the only museum in Australia to have a display of that. Some world-class stuff. And also this one, see a real dragon. How do I, what do I mean, see a real dragon? Well, you see, the team came across this. It's from China. It's in Jurassic Rocks. We've got Jurassic Ark. We better get this. Um, what's its name? Guanlong Wukiai. You see, what you will find is that this is a Chinese dragon. It's got a Chinese name. Um, but what you will find is the person who invented the word dinosaur in 1841, uh, Sir Richard Owen, he actually invented the name dinosaurs but called them dragons both before and after he invented the name. In fact, the dinosaurs were called dragons up until around the 1920s and 30s, uh, when it became politically incorrect to call them anymore. Except for the Chinese. They still call them dragons. Long means dragon. It is the Chinese word for dragon, the same one that they use when talking about the Chinese dragons. Guanlong Wukiai, and guess what? He too drowned, provably. That's why we have this mural of Guanlong drowning. All these dinosaurs in our collection drowning. Um, these are some of the examples that we've got uh, and we display from around the world, including having more mules showing this. I mean, look, dinosaur drowning, dinosaur being buried, and in fact, this is uh, based on a field trip which me and John did, where we actually went and dug these dinosaurs up. They've been drowned all over the world. Um, the point? There are many theories and opinions that contradict everything in the Bible, but the facts never do. It's really true. Sobering thought, 2 Peter 3. There shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they are willingly are ignorant, of that by the word of God the heavens of it were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. You see, you've got two references there the original creation, and Noah's flood. The earth standing out of the water and in the water. You see, the one thing that we love to do, it's a, sort of a little bit cheeky, but you ask people, how long did it rain for when the world first covered the water? And the answer is, no days at all. Because everybody goes 40 days and 40 nights, but if you read your Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The earth was created covered in water. And then, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. Noah's flood. For this they are willingly are ignorant. 
come visit Jurassic Park. Come see the, uh, the actual, we've got incredible gardens there as well, which take you through, you know, the beginning, the creation of the world, through the fall, through the dinosaurs, through the flood, to the end. Fantastic displays, real live research there as well. Research that has been influenced from around the globe and has also gone around the globe as well. Come to our open day on September the 8th if you're up in Queensland way. It's completely free. Um, we'll be there to take you around as well. And um, while John comes up, because I believe we're now going to have some questions, I will just show you a few little of the resources that we've got out there. Um, if you're interested in this kind of age of the earth flood kind of detail, we've got some very good DVDs out there. Noah's Flood, Washing Away Millions of Years by a guy who has his PhD from England uh, in geology and he's looking at if you have Noah's Flood, do you really need the millions of years? But also, is there actually any evidence for the millions of years in the first place? Uh, very good DVD. Also, brilliant testimony from this guy, Dr. Ron Neller. You see, he was an atheist, had a, um, he was a geomorphologist, so he basically looks at the big picture of geology, you know, landforms, things like that. Um, he came from an atheistic background, but he sort of never really questioned the idea of a god, or, you know, he, he never had any concept of it. Um, and he began studying uh, a particular rock formation over in China, I believe it was, um, and uh, he said, hang on a minute, this has been formed by a really big flood. And then he began to trace where the rocks actually went, and he said, wow, this is a really big flood. In fact, this flood covered most of the world. No Christian background, no creationist background, he was just looking at the evidence. But then he tried to publish it, and found that he couldn't. In fact, he actually ended up losing his job, because he was trying to publish this paper that there was once a flood that covered the whole world. Um, and he couldn't understand why. And so he actually ended up, uh, a friend of his gave him a Bible, he began reading through the Bible and he suddenly went, ah, there's the flood. It was the one recorded in Genesis. He actually became a Christian through that as he carried on reading and read about the God who actually sent the flood. So there's a great testimony from him there, um, some great stuff about the flood. Also, last couple of bits that I will just quickly mention because these have become brand new to me as well. I was actually presented these two books by the author just a few weeks ago. You see, you'll find masses of resources uh, in the sort of creationist literature world about the flood, masses of resources about, you know, genetics and evolution, but relatively little or next to nothing about history and archaeology. Um, whereas these are some of the best ones that are actually out there. Uh, Dr. John Osgood, he spent the last 40, 50 years researching this and has actually published some amazing resources. Um, I read through them straight away. They are absolutely incredible. And also this guy, he actually had some questions and began going and searching for the answers himself. Um, no background. He went out and actually looked for the evidence himself. Exodus, patterns of evidence, some really great stuff you'll find out there as well. Thank you, Joseph. Look, we're having a question time in the middle tonight because uh, we don't want to flood you with data. That's a lot of stuff, yeah. Okay, so stand up, turn around, sit back down again, get that blood circulating. And think of some questions. You can sit down if you like. Okay, grab a seat, grab a seat. We have a young lady over here with a question, yes. Uh, you mentioned about the uh, reptiles continuing to grow and old ages that were very big. I've always wondered about the megafauna. So, for example, wombats and uh, kangaroos in Australia, and apparently they were very huge, but mammals don't tend to do the same thing. Um, 
what you will find, uh, um, we, we actually spent the last, uh, it was a couple of days ago, we went to a fantastic new megafauna museum in Alice Springs, brand new, based on some of the fossil deposits they'd found there, and some of the creatures were massive. In fact, we actually have a giant wombat skull in our collection, um, Diprotodon, right? Um, what you will find is that the majority of mammals don't actually continue growing all their life. Uh, that's what you will find. There are a few exceptions, but the majority of them don't. But what you will find is that the size of mammals are linked to two things. The first one is genetics. The second one is lifestyle. All right. So you will find uh, mammals who have healthier genetics have the ability to get larger. Also, mammals who live in you know, lovely areas where they've got plenty of food and plenty of good nutritious food, they can get larger as well. So, okay, think back to the original creation. Everything that God created was very good. These animals were in their prime state and they were living in a prime habitat. Okay, they were able to get very large. They had very good genetics, very little diseases, very little problems. In fact, the first time you find disease mentioned in the Bible is not until the days of Job, uh, a little bit of time after the flood. Okay, skip forward to the flood. You've got the world's first major climate change. You've now got poles. You've now got extremes. You've now got deserts and cold and heat and a whole di vast difference of uh, landscapes. Also, you've got the fact that the curse happened and after the flood, you are around, you know, 1,500 years after the curse happened, and animals are beginning to develop diseases. They're beginning to develop problems, bone problems. Um, the one thing we know if you develop a bone problem is that you don't stay very large for very long. You tend to shrink and, you know, you, you don't pass on, on the genetics as well. Um, so you've got a mixture of selection from basically wrong habitats. They're living in places which literally cannot sustain them anymore. The evidence in the rocks is that Australia used to be a lot warmer and a lot more wetter um, and a lot more pleasant to live in than your extremes that you get now, right? Um, and also you will find that increased diseases and increased genetics will cause creatures to get smaller and smaller as time goes on. Plus there is evidence that uh, people, you know, Aborigines living here hunted these creatures as well. Um, and if any of you have ever done or heard about or got interested at all into big game hunting, there's a reason why it's called big game hunting. It's because you shoot the big ones. Okay, if you shoot the big ones, they then can't pass on their big genes to produce more big ones, so you end up, the little ones are the ones that get away and actually end up surviving. Um, so it's a mixture of things uh, with mammals, but certainly with reptiles, again, it's the same kind of thing, it's just the fact that today they just can't live as long due to the same thing, selection and genes. One of the things we'll be having at our display, open, uh, open day display, is quite a few giant fossils. So one of the guys is bringing us a giant salamander. He's just found the skull is this big, right? And you'll see that in your picture. Uh, I was involved in an excavation on the Darling Downs where we dug up a giant kangaroo. Now that's sort of up to the roof and a bit beyond. And the evidence from the Darling Downs is they could exist there alongside mega wombats. We have a, the jaw must be this long, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's big. Um, it's big. And uh, that they had plenty of food. Uh, so the, the Darling Downs were much moister, much better vegetated. And when that changed, they, the big ones have to go. They either have to diminish, as it were, they can't grow as big. You see a living example of this uh, when you go from the coast where I live and we have blue tongue lizards that are up to that long. Right, then you get to the other side of the Darling Downs and they're that big. Then you get to Charleville and beyond and they're that big. Then you cross the Northern Territory border and they're that big. Right, and in reality all that's happened is as you go further west, there's less water, there's less shade, so the big ones that they can't survive at all. It's a natural selection which does what natural selection always does, it degenerates things. Okay, good question. Anybody else?
Um, there is a book out there, by the way, on monsters. If there's any left from the homeschooling conference, they ravaged them today. One on monsters, one on dragons, and one on um, fossils, on the flood, yeah. So if you have a look at the monster book, it's great. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. When the fountains, of, the great fountains of the deep were broken open, the evolutionists argue that there's not enough water on the surface of the earth and in the atmosphere to flood the entire globe. Anybody got any idea how much water is below the surface? Um, we have a much better idea now with our deep in-ground mapping of water resources. We're not just talking about Tesian water anymore. We actually are going down deeper than that, and there are vast quantities, uh, oceans of water uh, in the central part of the earth, not way down deep, but just under what we would call the surface of the earth. So you've got the surface water, then you've got underground water, then the big artesian basins, and then further down you have vast quantities of water. So um, if you didn't have that, you could still cover the earth with water because I first came across this Time Life. Some of you old enough to remember those publications? They produced a whole series on the land, on the oceans, on the air, and they're, they're really still worth getting. But in the one on the oceans, it has a very interesting introduction where it says there is sufficient water in the oceans to cover the entire earth to a depth of three miles. Right, because if you think of the oceans, you go to the bottom of the Marianas Trench and it's deeper than Mount Everest is tall. So you just stuff Mount Everest upside down in there and you've still got plenty of water covering it. Right, so it's not a question of how much water, it's more a question of where the water is. So when you look at Genesis chapter 1, the water is covering over all the earth, so there always was enough water to cover the world. It was created that way, and there still is. Uh, I'm just grateful that God has promised he won't do that again. But the next warning is worse. He's going to burn it up, right? So there really will be global warming to finish the planet off. Okay, uh, one more question before we move on to part two. Yes? You weren't here today, were you? Yeah, no, but you left before that girl asked that question. Um, is there any evidence of human remains? Short answer then, because I already answered it that length this afternoon. I did a project in association with the British Museum. Uh, I went to South America to check out where a fossil human had come from, reported back to Dr Chris Stringer. He has a complete fossil human in his basement. Right, in the British Natural History Museum. No doubt about it, I've got photographs. It's a fossil person. It's entrapped in rock. And as I'm reporting to him and finding out what he knows, I asked a simple question, how many fossil people do you know of? Quote, unquote, oh, about 30,000. Right? Now, I have quoted him on the BBC. I've quoted him all around the globe. He's had every opportunity. I've quoted him at Oxford, and I've referred, made him the reference point. They've had every opportunity to check it, and not once has he got up and contradicted that. Right? If you want the division, it's very easy. Um, since the days he told me that number, and I checked what's happened to them, um, there's 3,000 human fossils on the official list. Official meaning if you're in the club. Right? Then there's another 10,000 on the not-so-official list. Then the rest are on the if-you-need-to-know list. Right? In other words, it's a, it's a hidden agenda of information by and large. It's not available to the general public. Well, you see, the, the whole problem is the museums today display evidence that backs up theories. 
So if the theory of evolution is in, what use is 30,000 dead people? It isn't any use, right? So therefore it doesn't rate. It's now in the basement. Beautiful fossil human. And I've seen fossil people up there, right? Um, but they're not on display in any major museum at all. So thank you for that. Let's move on. Grab a seat, poor Mr. Sorley. I want you to meet Roman because we're in a Christian church tonight and I make no apologies. I'm a Christian and this guy is now a Christian too. See him smiling? Oh, by the way, when he gets excited, he lapses into a very strong Ukrainian accent because you've worked with him and he does do that, doesn't he? That's right. He's a wonderful, He's a wonderful worker. But he came up to me and he told me some interesting things. Two years ago, I'm not a Christian. Okay. And uh, I said, why? What's the problem? He said, two years ago, world too old, people turning from monkeys into people, couldn't believe Bible. I said, well? He said, well, somebody gave me your DVD, Time's Up Darwin, blew away all my objection. Now I become Christian two years ago. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, or well, two things. You see, that's all about the age of things. Some of the things we're talking about, we went around the world with a documentary team and filmed. So you don't need just to believe our slides. Have a look for yourself. But uh, I, I don't believe people's enthusiasm as necessary evidence. So I went and I checked with his pastor and I said, this guy, Roman, um, what, what do you know about him? He said, well, every Saturday he's out witnessing to Jews and atheists uh, where the rubber hits the road. Now, last year he uh, joined our team as a bookstore helper. And this year he's become uh, Joseph's offsider on research. I'll drive you anywhere, Joseph. Uh, yes, it's hard to get uh, calmed down sometimes. Uh, uh, you see, this subject here is not just an incidental issue because most people know that if you can't believe the first page of any book, why bother reading any further? If you can't believe Genesis 1, then you can't believe John 1. If Genesis is not true about creation, then there's no creator who's going to judge you in the last book of the Bible. If there never was a judgment in Noah's flood, who cares about a promise, about a conflagration at the end? You see, what's interesting, in the past uh, 18 months, we've had parents come and say, our kindergarten kids are being pummeled with evolution. And no, we did not just do these books that we've tested all around the world for the sake of commerce. The parents said, our kindergarten kids are being pummeled with evolution. Can you help us? That's why we did that book. And parents, as we said today, it not only is a fun book, it tells you how to pronounce the dinosaurs and the kids can already do that and they're ashamed of you if you can't. It's really fun. And you do learn who made the dinosaurs. And you do learn that Rudyard Kipling was really uh, um, pulling your leg. You know the story about the crocodile pulling your nose? Nonsense stuff. We do need to know, the kids need to know, why on earth the dinosaurs, uh, the, the elephants got such a big long nose. You need to see it all on DVD as well. And the new ones that just came out a month or so ago that we were trying to give away for prizes. Uh, what I was really thrilled for was a kindergarten teacher in Victoria who came and said, I've got to take a bunch of these. I said, why? Well, I'm the supervisor at the kindergarten and the government in Victoria has just dumped a heap of books on us for the kindergarten kids which have two dads or two mums or the three and four-year-olds don't know if they're boys or girls and they're trying to find out and get help. Uh, uh, you do need to make use of these. We didn't just do them for commercial reasons. There's a need out there and you parents and grandparents will find it very helpful. Okay, have you ever figured out that Christianity is a fact-based faith? It's the only religion that is. If you're a Buddhist, it doesn't matter if Buddha ever existed. 
If you're a Chinese Confucianist, it's really irrelevant whether Confucius lived on this planet. All that matters is his ideas. Okay? I'm going to take you and give you a look at some fact-based fossils, uh, some action fossils, I call them, because here's what most people think. The animals lived, the animals died, the rocks built up over them. Then the next layer came, the next layer. Over millions of years, the rocks built up. And the fossils, well, you've heard Joseph talk about them take a long time. Well, there's many fossils that I call action fossils that are in my collection that absolutely deny that way of seeing things. You see a bunch of shells? Some of you fishermen might recognise pippy shells. But how good your eyeballs? Two things you'd notice. One is they're closed. And if you walk along the beaches of Victoria or the edge of New South Wales, you'll find when pippy shells die, they open up. Yeah, they do. Uh, did you spot the starfish? See the starfish here? Crawling over? Now, some of you have walked in the sand on the bottom of the sea, and you know that when a starfish dies, it goes, ah! Stiff as a board. Then it falls apart fairly quickly. Hmm, that animal was crawling when it was buried. These shells were alive, so they instantly responded by making sure they were shut as they were buried. There's one from my collection. Do you recognise it? It's a squid, that's right. Ah, and I noticed that the uh, ink sac still had ink in it. Yeah, true. So we actually got Dr. Diane Eager, a medical biologist from Canberra University at that stage, and we actually got the ink. Oh, you had to lift the cover of the thing off, and we actually wrote some words. By the way, there's the fossil word ink. Amazing, isn't it? And when I showed that to the Professor of Biochemistry uh, at uh, the University of British Columbia, he was amazed and he said, that animal died in less than 20 minutes. I said, how do you know that? He said, because when you have a dead creature with melanin in it, it's only got a 20-minute sort of shelf life before it starts to be decomposed. I thought, that's interesting. He said, if you go to the Middle East and you buy melanin, yes, you get it in bottles, they, they milk the squid to sell you as food colouring. He said, have a look at the use-by date. Have you noticed use-by dates are sometimes very revealing about the truth of the people who, who, who market the product? Have you bought yourself some pink Himalayan salt? Read the use-by date. This salt, 200 million years old, used by July 2017. Yeah, something's wrong somewhere there. And you like these little bugs? Yes, they're in our collection of creation research. They're three-dimensional. I mean, you can hollow them out and see all the legs and everything inside. These creatures are so well-preserved, you can cut them in two, and we know everything about the anatomy of the trilobites because all their nervous system and their guts and muscles are fully preserved inside. Now, if you dug up, dug up Uncle Tom, who was buried last year, he's not intact. He may be in the coffin, but he's not intact. Uh, what you'll find is he's fallen apart. Yes, he was buried, and he was buried quickly because the local shire council doesn't let you leave him in the lounge room for six months, do they? Okay, but he's fallen apart. These guys, so quickly buried, their bits are still intact. Oh, what are we looking at? These are little trilobites. One, two, three. Say it in Latin, tri-lobe-ite. Right? That's, that's, that's the whole trick that is, yes? All right, well, you, you're going to be answered that, so just keep watching. That's great. I thought of that question too. Um, there's one there, rolled up. You see his back is folded around. There's his eyeballs there. And in fact, when you go looking for his cousins that are still alive, you discover 
roly-polies, forest bugs, forest louses, litter bugs. They've got all sorts of those potato bugs, sow bugs all around the planet. And they're interesting because when you touch them, they roll up. Yeah, they roll up. So did these guys. And they're frightened. So this is not just a fossil, it's a petrified fossil. Um, it was buried frightened. And as a result, it was buried alive. Ah, now this is a real specimen. I've got hundreds of these in my collection now. Do you notice his eyes? Get closer. Get closer. Yeah, I took these pictures a couple of years ago. See the lenses are still in there? And you can actually take them out and look through the world, look at the world through the eyes of a trilobite. Now, could you do that to your late great uncle Henry? No. You see, this is beautifully preserved. He's got a double lens system, a compound lensing system, which is beautifully designed to compensate for the changing speed of light coming from water into a solid substance into a nervous system. Amazing. You see, these are action fossils, ones that were actually buried, not because of time, but because of a process that was incredibly quick. Have you spotted it yet? Here's the stem. There's the feathery arms. Oh, look what's inside it. It's another creature. Both of these have been swept along. This guy has grabbed hold of the other one and hung on for dear life. Trouble was, it was dear death because they were both covered up and this guy was holding on tight and the mud went hard so quickly he couldn't let go. Ah, not time, but process. When I came across this one, um, no, it's not in my collection. It is in the Natural History Museum collection. You see two little mites. Uh, these are air bubbles here. Two little mites. Can you notice anything interesting? They're mating. Now they still live. Oh, this bit of amber is supposed to be 40 million years of age, which proves that mites have turned into mites. Um, uh, uh, what you find is they're mating, and uh, mating only takes a few seconds. You don't have long to turn these into a fossil. Uh, if they are finished mating, they'll unlock. But this, this is a rapid fossil. But in central Australia, where we've just been, you find a, a, a chert, a, a, a highly dense silica uh, compound out there in the rocks. And when you slice it and you polish it, you'll notice it's got all sorts of elongated strings and circles and everything. How good are your eyes? Can you spot it yet? Put it on a bit higher. You see these nice filaments here? And every now and then you come across a cell that's dividing into two. 20 minutes is the maximum time you've got. But see, it's not just that this has been preserved because the stuff trapped it. This has been preserved and the material went inside because otherwise it would just be a hole. It's not. This has been totally penetrated by the chemical that's preserving it in less than 20 minutes because otherwise this would have already split in two. Action fossils? Well, you see, the Bible says the world was made in six days. The Bible says the world was destroyed, not over millions of years, but very quickly. And the animals that weren't on the ark, um, the land animals, the air-breathing ones, they were buried. All the little mites and you name it. Hmm. There are many theories and opinions that contradict everything in the Bible. You see, I used to be scared of professors because I thought, man, they know what they're talking about. No, they know the theories. They know all the technical words. 
they have a lot of opinions and many of the opinions that many of them hold will contradict the Bible. But as soon as you find out what the facts are, you find the facts never do. Let me show you. This came out today, or yesterday, I think, by the time our, our team got it. Making fossils in a day. Sediment in case maturation, a novel method for simulating... Hey, gee, they use big words for some of these papers, don't they? Um, how do you make fossils? Well, there's the report. Two researchers, University of Bristol, someone from the USA, they put chicken feathers, lizard feet and chicken heads in tablets of clay, then filled it up to 3,500 pounds of pressure, cooked it for 24 hours at 250 degrees C. And they say this is mimicking the conditions at 0.8 kilometres underground for tens of millions of years. The result, 24 hours later, bones surrounded by an outline of flesh and feathers coloured by organic pigments from the animal's tissue. I mean, they even give it to you. There's the original. There's what happened to it after it's been fossilised. Oh, well, I mean, there's the skull, and you can see an outline around it. But what's interesting is the rest of the report, where they report when researchers showed these to colleagues, they were asked how old they were and where were they discovered. Answer, they were found in our laboratory. Where did they come from? How old are they? 27 hours. Hmm. Not time, but process. And if that doesn't press you, we set out to do exactly the same at our Jurassic Ark. That's an ad from last year. We had three schools come, uh, two schools come over three days, uh, and it's great for the schools to come. They really enjoy the public seeing all the stuff that's there. But one of the things they get to do is make their own fossil. I mean, look, two hours, not two million years. Isn't that beautiful? If you know how it's done, it doesn't take long. It's not time, but a process. And I'm really glad for those researchers who are discovering what we discovered ages ago. You see, if you don't bury things quickly, you'll never make a fossil. You can't talk about vast ages being trapped in the rocks. You can't talk about the world being old or the need to have a gap theory. Oh, I say that because the first theologians who had the gap theory used the fossils of evidence for how old the world was. Hmm. The real problem... Are you ready for the punchline? Well, the punchline is actually about that long, so let's get to it. What is a fossil? There's two punchlines, really. It's a statement. Came across it when I was in the San Diego Natural History Museum. Fossils are the remains and or traces of prehistoric life. Not bad. Most of us would agree with most of us. But look at the rest of it. The critical fact is age. Are you listening, Pastor Gavin? You may be a fossil. <laughs> fossils have to be older than 10,000 years. Uh, you don't qualify. Kids, did you realise that means mum's not a fossil either? Uh, but you see, most people look, very few people see, and even fewer people think. It's a tragic truth of our modern age. Why can't you be a fossil if you're only 9,000? Why isn't there a rule that says you have to wait till you're 11,000? I mean, if you're 9,999 years and 364 days, you're not a fossil, why do you turn into a fossil the next day? Amazing, isn't it? Now, when I first started Queensland University, um, that was the statement given to me on the first day. I didn't come from a church background. We will not be studying any such nonsense as catastrophic flood geology. Quote, unquote. Hmm. Trouble is, I didn't know why. Why wasn't I allowed to find out about this stuff? Now meet Charles Lyell. That was where our lecturer went. There he is, Charles Lyell. Uh, this is a picture in the Natural History Museum geology section and they've got him up on the famous list 
Uh, he, he gave us the thought the present is the key to the past. And you think, okay, well, that's what scientists do. Look at what's happening now and go backwards. What's interesting, of course, is that's not all Charles Lael said, but it's all you're going to find out publicly. Um, it's interesting because when Ken Ham and I first gave our first lecture in New South Wales, south of Sydney at Wollongong, Charles Darwin's grandson was in the audience. Interesting to get to know the family and what's going on behind the scenes. And it's interesting to find out that Charles Lyell was Charles Darwin's mentor. Without Lyell's ideas, Charles Darwin would have got nowhere. Charles Darwin was training to be an Anglican minister. He was. He read Charles Lyell and basically tossed it all out the window. Didn't know what to do with it until he came up with his theory of evolution. But don't be surprised he did because there's what Lyell is famous for, if you know. My aim is to free the science from Moses. His sister published his letters. You can find them online these days. Charles Lyell set out to get rid of Moses out of science. And I'll guarantee they didn't tell you that at school because they didn't tell me. And they still don't post it up on the walls of museums. Because there's Moses. Adam was created. Up until Noah's flood, people lived to be 950. After Noah, Shem only 600, Abraham 175, Moses 120, and you and I are on the wrong side of Moses. You know that, don't you? It's true. In fact, the history of the world is around 6,000 years, and Lyell set out to get rid of it. Oh, he still hasn't got rid of it from the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, back in Y2K, it was passing from the year 5759 to 5760. And you can see what year it is. Look up the Jerusalem Daily. They've got the date from creation on the front of the publication. Which brings me back to this question. Why can't you be a fossil until you are 10,000 years old? Who makes up these rules? Uh, have you spotted anything? You see, if you can't be a fossil till you're over 10,000 years of age, then there isn't one single fossil that would back up Moses at all. The evidence is ruled out by definition. It gets rid of Genesis. And if you get rid of Genesis, if there is no God, he has no right to make the rules. So the story about the fall can't be true. And if he has no right to make the rules, who does he think he is judging the world? And if he judged the world then and he has no right, what on earth is the Ten Moral Commandments got to do with anything so we're free to do what we like? Get rid of the Creator. You get rid of the Judge. You don't need a Saviour because there is no Lord. So before we give you our last punchline, which is a real insight that many of you won't have had, the first time I came to this church, which is 20 years ago or something, um, if people don't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded that one rose from the dead. Interesting. If they do hear, listen, accept, believe Moses and the prophets, they can. Remember Roman? Roman couldn't believe the Bible because of his millions of years. Gets rid of his millions of years. No trouble at all with the Bible. I need a saviour. I'm in a mess. You see, he discovered there are many theories and opinions, but I've said that before, haven't I? The facts never contradict the Bible. What's important is this last issue. You see, the real problem has got a second part. Oh, there's the first part. You said that over and over again. It was getting monotonous. Uh, not time, but process. Caution. Pick the wrong process and... Hey, isn't industry about picking the right processes to get ahead? Time is money. If you want to save money, you have to save. If you want to save time, you need a better process, correct? Ah, that's the way it goes. The Bible says that Moses was told by God 
that in six days God had made the heavens and the earth. Oh, and he just didn't get told by God. Over there in Exodus, it says God wrote it down and gave it to Moses and said, here's two tablets, take two of them each day. That's what he said, right? Uh, this is one part of the Bible that doesn't claim to be human authored. It claims to be specifically dictated by God. And Moses had to rewrite it when he got mad at all the Israelites and smashed them on the way down. Question. The Bible talks about Jesus Christ being the creator of the heavens and the earth. So I put that question up. How does Jesus make things? And how long does he take? Some of you know your Bibles well enough to remember that he turned water into question how long did he take wrong question time never turns water into wine leave it around see what happens yourself um, process turns water into wine he took five loaves and two fishes and he put Aldi out of business correct yeah uh, how, how long did he take he didn't time will never turn bread into anything but mouldy bread he raised that how long have you got to raise somebody from the dead because, I mean, remember the advice he was given before he raised Lazarus? Don't go in there. He stinks. His body was already on the way out. You don't have time to raise somebody from the dead. You've either got the right process or you are, well, you, you, you're in trouble. He restored sight to that. Hey, do you realise what you have to do when you do that? Because we've gotten not too bad about fixing some eye problems. And we've got on record because Dr. Diane Eager was in medical biology at Canberra University and there's a classic case of a young girl being given sight who'd never seen anything before and she screamed. She couldn't make any sense of anything she saw. I mean, what's a tree if you're blind? What's green? What's a dog look like? You just don't know. She begged to be blind again. Do you realise if you're going to give somebody sight, you need to give them memory at the same time? Or they have no idea what it is they've got. Ah, how long do you take to do any of those? Wrong question. Time doesn't do any of them at all. You see, talent does. And Jesus Christ, as the creator, had the right process. He didn't need the time at all. You know, it took me a long time to realise that. That what we're talking about here is people saying, well, if I was God, it would take me millions of years because I haven't made my bed yet today. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? We don't have much talent at all. I've looked at processes, you know, they, they take the clay and they put the chemicals in and they sit back and they watch. And they, they then write a paper on how it would take millions of years. And I like to gently chide them and say, well, listen, if you put somebody intelligent in charge of that, it would happen a whole lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, And therein is the problem. And the Bible says that the all-knowing Jesus, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing and all-present, omnipresent Holy Spirit actually have the right process. Hmm. They didn't need any time at all. Would you like a warning to finish with before we have our last question time? I know many Christians who really want the world to come to pass like it says in Revelation 21-20. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And yet they struggle with Genesis. Okay, do you realise that Jesus in Genesis who created is the same Jesus who's going to remake the heavens and the earth in the book of Revelation? How many Christians do you think want to hang around for six billion years while Jesus makes the next planet? How silly it gets. You see, any Christian worth their salt is waiting for Jesus to do that, which is how it reads. You see, he won't use six days the second time. He doesn't need to. He needed the first time because he looked down the line and saw, I need a lesson to teach these people. I need to teach them they're sinners. And even just a simple rule like work for six days and rest for seven. How good are you at keeping that rule? 
Hey, you work for 10 days on, have four days off, you in God's sight, you're a sinner. We don't like that, do we? Unfortunately, you're not the one that makes the rules. Uh, but the second time, he doesn't need to use six days at all. Can I encourage you to realise this is not just an incidental issue, it's absolutely vital. I have a bunch of people tomorrow night, you're really a practice crowd, I don't mean to offend you, but we needed to put together something that they wanted because they've got lots of questions about this issue. They're a lot more sceptical than the people in uh, in this lovely little town. But I uh, hope you've enjoyed what we've done tonight. We're going to give you a chance to ask questions. Joseph, if you want to come back out here, and then we'll close the night. I'll hand back to Pastor, and we'll be out at the book table. Don't forget, if you want to get our newsletters, if you're not on it, if you want to find out more about Jurassic Ark, how you can support the museum projects and all of that, uh, fill in the form out there and give it to Joseph. Anybody got any questions? Satisfied them all, Joseph. We've done real good, I tell you. Yes? With the dinosaur bones that you find, how come we don't find them with skin and flesh intact like the other... Okay, I personally have seen dinosaur skin. right? And what you find is... um, Know these trilobites we're talking about here? When you go... Like, uh, we camped last night at the Upper Plenty in one area there where I've got lovely rolled-up trilobites, right? And what you find is that most people will take a pickaxe and go looking, right? Um, it's like using a D8 tractor to do archaeology in Greece, right? It's not the right way. And so you miss the detail. And so what we're learning is that if you see the dinosaur bones, then instead of digging the bone out, which is the obvious thing, you actually smooth the edge away until you can actually see the body edge, right? And it's amazing what we're actually spotting now. You actually see the skin and uh, all sorts of things as well that that you thought weren't even there, but they really are. Um, Joseph, we... actually the archaeologist who first gave us this kind of concept, because you know when they do archaeology, if you watch anything like Time Team or the Australian equivalent, you will see that when they actually are digging up human bones, the one thing they do is very carefully look, because you will find where the the flesh is kind of rotted away, you can see there's a thin bit of organic matter around it. And you can actually work out what that person was wearing, what the last meal he had, loads of details, just from that thin little bit around the edge. It's exactly the same with dinosaurs. The only difference is it's actually more well-preserved with the dinosaurs. It's just a new way of looking at it and a new way of doing research. One of the things I noticed when I was in Germany, there's a fabulous fossil beds there. In fact, our word Jurassic comes from Germany because the Jura Mountains are in the southern part of Germany. Lots of dinosaurs, lots of Australian pine trees buried with the dinosaurs there, extinct in the northern hemisphere now. But you can actually tell where the fossil is because it leaves a 3D shadow on the surface. If you dig a layer up and people say, there's no fossils there, and you say, hold it up to the light, and because it's been a three-dimensional fossil, you'll actually see a three-dimensional shadow, very faint, but it'll be there, and you can spot the fish, and you can start digging in from the outside. And so if you ever go to a very expensive uh, fossil shop or anything, you'll see rocks this thick with the fossil in there beautifully excavated. And that's what they've done. Oh, yeah, there's the fish. Uh, there's the bird. And if you do it that way, you'll come into the skin first. Uh, it's also why you'll pay five to $10,000, because that's an awful lot of work. See, you know. you could, with the same fish, you could do an alternative thing, which is what they used to do, which is to till it on the top and it splits in half, and you get two halves. Which but is two inside not, halves. Know, yeah. inside. And it's a lovely fish fossil. When you actually do it like that, not only do you see the scales, not only do you see the skin, you can also find proteins in there, still in yeah. there, preserved yeah. perfectly. Yeah. Good question. Anybody else? Yes, Pastor. 
How did the koalas walk? From, well, you had an interesting experience with koalas on this trip. You'd never seen a koala till you got here, really. No, okay, tell them about your experience, then we'll help them answer the question. <laughs> Basically, I wanted to see a koala. I mean, I'm in Australia, why not? Um, we were down in Kangaroo Island. I was on my own because John had to rush back to Brisbane for a few days. So I was on my own there. I was being taken down. And the guy who I was taken down to um, Kangaroo Island by, I said, what are the chances of seeing a koala? And he said, well, we're going to have to speak to some of the locals because you never really know where they're going to be and whatever. So we'll speak to the locals, see what they say. Um, spoke to a local and I said, what are the chances of seeing a koala? And he said, uh, probably about 110%. I was like, okay, that's a good, good chances. Um, he said, tell you what, let's go for a walk and see if we can find one. We ended up finding uh, about 10 or so around, um, but one of them was about two foot off the ground and not looking very well and quite unhappy. So he said, oh, we'll take him in to uh, uh, take, stick him in the car to warm up. Stuck him in the car, we went off, went back home, came back to his fatigue, and we walked in the door and the koala was sitting there on the sofa being wrapped up in blankets, being watched on by the dogs. And so we ended up having a cup of tea sitting next to, to a koala, <laughs> which was quite surreal, I must <laughs> Okay, to answer the question, how did kangaroos get to King Island? The answer is Europeans took them over there because there was none there to start with. Uh, as to how they got to Australia, what you'll find is very interesting. It's related to the question of how did the people get here? Remember I've said over and over again, many people look, very few people see, and even fewer people think about it. When Captain James Cook got here first in a nice big ship, even he noticed that none of the locals had any seagoing vessels. I mean, you look at Aboriginal canoes, they're not going to go to sea at all, and they didn't. They could sail the inner coastal waters or up and down creeks, etc. And so the question was, how did the black people get here? Right? Because in his day, Captain Cook read his Bible at church on, on Sundays to the crew. Right, They had the Anglican service on the ship. No matter how, cr how crude the, the ship was, he was made sure there was a Christian service on there. So he was very much aware of the fact that the Bible said we came from Babel, therefore they must have got here somehow. They couldn't have sailed. Now, there were all sorts of theories put forward by the Europeans in the next little while about how the Aborigines get there until finally somebody said, let's ask them. <laughs> uh, silly the sources of information we have. And what you find is they always talk about their ancestors coming from the north, walking, right? And since then, uh, because one of the first projects I had when I did geology was to map the underwater rivers off the coast of Queensland, right? And what you find is the rivers on the coast go out and then they go down through the Barrier Reef, right across the coastal plain, or the old coastal plain, right out to the edge of the continental shelf. And there are beaches out there, right? And the water level was at least 100 metres, and in some cases 130 metres deeper than it is today. Now, if you do that, and you can easily check this, because in today's world, global warming is a problem. Even though it was minus two at Kilkeven this morning in Queensland, global warming is supposed to be a problem. So they've got graphs on the computer that you can actually go to and ask, if the water level drops 10 metres, will my city be damaged, right? Will the value of my real estate drop? All those sort of things. And you can also do it in reverse and say if the water level drops by 10 metres or 20 metres or 30 metres, right? And so you can actually find out if you drop the water level 130 metres, you can actually walk from the Shetland Islands all the way across to South America without getting your feet wet, all right? Many fossils on the way. Uh, yes, there are lots of fossils on the way, uh, and they're all dead and buried because none of them would have been there when you were walking when the sea went down. There's nothing to bury them, but there's, they're already there in the rocks. But what you find also is that you can do the same to Australia except for one little gap we'd have to paddle over.
right? And if we can do it, then the animals can do it. Uh, there's also faults along those gaps, so they may be more recent than we think, like the one in Bass Strait has definitely sunk, right? But if you follow the trees out, uh, you can see it right across Australia, the forests go out under the sea, same as they do in the Northern Territory. I've been and photographed them myself and shocked one of the young men from our church who was a scuba diver, and he was asking about this. So said, look, you're a scuba diver. When you go out next time, take some pictures of the trees standing upright in the bottom of Water Bay for me. And he came back and he said, you're right. There's trees there. I said, I told you. <laughs> and so what you find is there's old forests that have drowned and the bottoms are still actually poking up on the bottoms of the harbour. So there's a lot of evidence that you could have walked anywhere after Noah's flood until the first global warming kicked in and the ice melted and filled up the holes again. Yes, basically, you could walk anywhere you like in the next few hundred years, really. Well, think carefully of the dilemma you're posing. You've all of a sudden had a reduction in the world population to two of each kind, right? You've got a maximum of three pairs of, of vegetarian animals and two of each of the non-vegetarian animals, the carnivore, the, the scavengers at that stage. Yeah, it's, and they're all on one boat. They're all in one place. You can't have one kangaroo go to North America, the other one go to No, that's Australia right. But they'd be the extinct fairly out. quick. That's right. So therefore, after Noah's flood, there's only a limited number of places where they can go. And we've got evidence of marsupials in many places. Like it really shocked me one year when I was in Canada to come across in the basement of the museum in Ottawa an Australian monotreme dug up with the dinosaurs. Right. I knew it was a monotreme because I recognised them, right? I, I'd found them when I was a student. And uh, yet they come from the, the dinosaur beds of Canada and they're officially listed there as platypus as well as monotremes, right? And it's just amazing. And so the distribution is far wider than is ever admitted to. Okay, you had a question over here? Pretty much that. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Okay, last chance, anyone? Go? You had a question. Yes, what's your question, love? How does a fungus grow on a fish? Well, aren't you the president of the Fungal Society? Not quite that. that well, don't you, yes, don't you have... Officially, I'm the secondary Norfolk recorder for the Norfolk and Norwich Naturalist Society with fungus. <laughs> some people. <laughs> in fact, don't you have your name against some newly identified yes, species? Yeah, I'd like to push him. I was one of the researchers that... Ah, good. It. So listen, you better answer this question because okay, I just spray the stuff. <laughs> Okay, what you will find is that when God created the world, he created lots of different things that helped clean up. Um, so things like crabs live on the bottom of the sea, and they clean up all the, all the, you know, the, the dead animals and the dead plants and stuff that fall down. Now, before, uh, before sin entered the world, before man sinned and death entered the world, there would have been no fish or creatures for these things to clean up but they would have still been there to clean up things like plants and we know that fish shed their scales all the time and uh, different creatures lose different bits and so they were there to clean up and so what you'll find is the fungus lives on the bottom of the sea it was created by God to be a cleaner it cleans up the things which fall to the bottom uh, that are dead whether it be plants or now animals now it's interesting because what we find is that there are very few living things that can actually digest keratin. That's why if you bite your fingernails, uh, those fingernails go all the way through you because the fingernails are made out of keratin. They don't get digested, right? Um, it's the same keratin. actually know that? <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
But what you will find is that there are actually one of the some of the only creatures that can digest things like keratin, which is what your hair and what horn and what scales are all made out of, um, is either a very well, there's about three different species of bacteria, and the majority of the things which can digest them are fungus. And so fungus were there able to digest uh, keratin and high silica things like a lot of the plants and the seaweeds have a lot of silica in them, which a lot of creatures struggle to digest, um, especially when they die. That's why you find a lot of these things sort of washed up on shore. But you'll find that the little fungus has got very, very thin little cells. It can actually go inside, and it's a bit strange because it's not quite a plant, it's not quite an animal, but it does eat things, and it does digest things. So it kind of cleans up. It'll go around eating all the dead things, eating all things like your keratin and the fish scales and the leftover bits. It will actually digest them completely and use them up. In other words, God thought through the whole thing. Everything from the beginning. Pastor, you want to close tonight and tell us about the cup of tea and all that? Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you for coming down and, uh, or up. No, you're coming from up and down and ministering to us tonight. And so you've got other questions, you might ask them over a cup of tea. There is, there'll be a cup of tea next door and something to, a bite to eat. And for those here at the fellowship, um, Mrs. Brunken, the funeral is next Wednesday at 10.30 here at the church and afterward at the Jindra Cemetery there, Lord willing. There's still some details to work out. We'll send a text to those that um, aren't here tonight. So let's pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truths of your word and the literalness of it being fulfilled in the past, in the future. Lord, I pray that we'd Take it, believe it, and obey it. Lord, uh, bless the men as they travel on from here and minister to others, some not so receptive, Lord, and use them to bring glory to your name. We thank you for the food, bless it to our bodies and our fellowship together. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who created all these things and us, and one day will give us new bodies in an instant, that we might be like him when we see him. We ask your blessing as we go now in Jesus' name. Amen.